This is the Alvin Galloway Show. On this segment of the Alvin Galloway Show is a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services titled Honoring the Legacy of Vincent Chin, Strengthening Cross-Racial Solidarity Against Rising Tide of Racist Violence. The briefing was held on May 27, 2022. Moderating the briefing is Ethnic Media Services Editor Sandy Close. Speakers include Michael German, a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. Helen Zia, author, activist, and former journalist, founding member of the Detroit-based American Citizens for Justice. John C. Yang, President and CEO, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC. And Lisa Saylor Barrett, Director of Policy, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Hi, I'm jazz artist Bretina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything we have? Corey Henry, fighting for peace. Believe me, I know life could be so heavy, but you're not alone. You gotta get up, there's no time for putting down. We gotta move on, we can't give up now.
this segment of the Alvin Galloway Show is a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services titled Honoring the Legacy of Vincent Chin, Strengthening Cross-Racial Solidarity Against Rising Tide of Racist Violence. The briefing was held on May 27, 2022. Moderating the Briefing is Ethnic Media Services President Sandy Close. Speakers include Michael German, a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. Helen Zia, author, activist, and former journalist, founding member of the Detroit-based American Citizens for Justice. John C. Yang. President and CEO, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, and Lisa Saylor Barrett, Director of Policy, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I'm Sandy Close, Director of Ethnic Media Services and today's moderator. Our briefing commemorates the 40th anniversary of the murder of Vincent Chin a young Chinese American who was fatally beaten with a baseball bat in Detroit on the eve of his wedding. His two white assailants mistook him for a Japanese. At the time, many feared deindustrialization was robbing America of jobs. The murder and the miscarriage of justice that followed marked what one of our speakers, Helen Zia, calls the birth of the modern day Asian American civil rights movement. Today, Asian Americans face what some see as an even more intense, but maybe simply a continuing climate of racist hate and violence. One that targets all communities of color, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs included, and involves inter-ethnic and even intra-ethnic violence, as well as violence by white supremacists. In keeping with Vincent Chin's legacy, our speakers will discuss not only what's happening today, but the challenge of building a stronger multiracial movement of solidarity to address racist hate and violence, as well as plans to commemorate Vincent Chin's legacy in Detroit between June 16th and June 20th. We have a wonderful lineup of speakers, including Michael German, formerly with the FBI, now a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. Helen Zia, author and activist, and a founding member of the Detroit-based American Citizens for Justice, which formed in the aftermath of Chin's murder. John C. Yang, President and CEO of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, 
and Lisa Siler Barrett, Director of Policy at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Thank you so much to our speakers. We begin with Michael German, fellow at the Brennan Center, who will speak about the racist violent, violence and hate communities of color and others confront today. Mr. German, thank you. Thank you, and, and thank you for having me. Um, it, it's my pleasure to be here and talk about this uh, difficult issue to, to talk about. I mean, one of the reasons why it's hard to talk about um, hate crimes in general, and specifically anti-Asian hate crimes, is that the data that the government collects is so poor. Uh, even though there, there are five federal hate crime statutes, the Department of Justice's policy is to defer the investigation of hate crimes to state and local law enforcement, even though they know that year in and year out, only about 15, uh, only about 15%, uh, not even usually, uh, of police departments even acknowledge that hate crimes occur within their jurisdictions. So there's a big gap in our knowledge of, of hate crimes. Um, it's also a little bit difficult to discuss because there are a lot of common misassumptions about hate crimes. Uh, when I was uh, with the FBI, I worked undercover in white supremacist groups. And when people hear hate crime, they typically think of a crime like the mass shooting in, in Buffalo, where you have somebody who is an avowed white supremacist who is committing a crime uh, there against black people, you know, in in uh, Pennsylvania against Jewish people, in uh, Texas against uh, uh, Hispanic people, uh, and they don't understand that white supremacy is actually broader than that, and racism is is much more common in our society, and unfortunately in many ways, foundational society. And if you look at, at the way uh, anti-Asian hate in the United States has developed over the course of hundreds of years, uh, you see that a lot of the anti-Asian hate is actually directed more from uh, powerful segments of society rather than the fringe white supremacists that are engaging in you know, so-called extremist talk. Um, and you know that goes back to the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act and, and open racism against Asian people, viewing Asian people as a threat to the United States. And I think looking at, at you know, examining what's going on today through the murder of Vincent Chin is, is, is a helpful way to look at it because there you didn't have people who necessarily were wearing clan hoods and, and you know, part of a sophisticated uh, white supremacist criminal organization, rather you had a pervasive environment where it wasn't extremist talk. It was talk that was on the news every day about how Japan was outcompeting the United States and jobs were, were shifting overseas and, and they were stealing our jobs, particularly in, in the auto making centers of the world and our manufacturing base. So that anti-Asian hatred was something that was drummed up through society from positions of power. This is what politicians were talking about. This is what the news media was talking about constantly when 
it, really most of that was sensationalist. I mean, the Japanese economy was not nearly the size of the US economy, but it was a convenient way for people in power to create a scapegoat, right? It's not that US policies are, are not doing what they should for the common worker in the United States. It was, oh, there's this foreign entity that's causing problems. And, you know, I think that is, it explains pretty well why we've seen, and again, the data is bad, but the groups that collect this data outside the government show a, a severe uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans is, is because we're seeing a lot of that same rhetoric from government actors talking about the threat that China poses, uh, talking about the pandemic as if it was you know, China's fault or, in, you know, in some cases, and, and again, this isn't just extremists on the fringe of our society, uh, you know, shaving their heads and putting Nazi tattoos on themselves. This is members of Congress. This is senators who, who are, are alleging without evidence that uh, the coronavirus was weaponized by China and sent to the United States intentionally as a weapon of war. So you can understand how in the general population, not just among this, these extremist white supremacists, but that that would drum up uh, uh, anti-Asian hatred. And you know, I think that's a better explanation for what's going on, yeah, even though, of course, uh, you know, the extremist groups look at Asians just as, as, uh, as they look at every other minority group. Um, but I think, that, I think the, what evidence we have points to a broader problem in our society and something that our policymakers should be better having better have better control over, um, and you know part of this came, I believe, out of the war on terrorism, right? That when when uh, our government created a community of suspicion, it was Muslims America, Muslim Americans, and of course many Asians in the United States come from countries that are predominantly Muslim or. Uh, are, are, are Muslim themselves. So, you know, it was very easy to create a public fear of Muslim Americans after 9-11, and that has just carried over. But particularly when you look at the rhetoric coming out of the intelligence community around China and their creation of something called the China Initiative, focusing uh, counterintelligence resources on a particular group just based on uh, their their it, you know, this is language from the FBI, their quote, nexus to China, unquote, uh, rather than evidence of, of any criminality. So, so thank you for having me. Thank you, Michael. A question I will start our Q&A off with. Do you see an expanding lens targeting communities of color as opposed to a specific community. When you look at the targeting just in the last four to six weeks, you have examples of African-Americans who are the targets, the number one target of hate crimes. Um, you have Latinos, you have a widening group, it seems to me, of Asians. Um, does this represent something different? 
and do you see it as it, it feels like a perfect storm at this point do you see it growing in intensity is it sort of feeding on itself uh so again it's difficult to to know whether the problem is increasing because the data is so poor the government which you know again sort of reinforces uh what i'm saying about how white supremacy is part of our culture that we don't even bother our government doesn't even bother to collect accurate data this is a problem that's been known for for decades right in 1990 congress passed the hate crime statistics act requiring the department of justice to collect accurate data about hate crimes instead the department of justice said well we'll let police agencies voluntarily report to us and that proved to be an ineffective methodology which what they knew by two, the year 2000 uh the justice department funded a study to find out why police agencies aren't reporting these crimes you could do that study again today and it would come up with the exact same reasons right we know that that is an ineffective way to understand this problem and yet the justice department doesn't make any change and you know even as uh there is more discussion of these crimes in the public right the public has had its say we, we, we talked to our elected representatives. We demanded they pass hate crime laws. Five federal hate crime statutes. Uh, the Bureau of Justice Assistance does crime victim surveys. In the crime victim surveys, they report that uh, 230,000 violent hate crimes a year. The Justice Department, with five federal hate crime statutes, prosecutes 25 defendants a year. So the 230,000 hate crimes out there, the Justice Department only prosecutes 25 of these cases a year on average. So there's a huge disconnect. And even as the, the Justice Department has, has uh, in rhetoric focused more, more on white supremacist crimes and, and racial hatred crimes, they aren't actually, it's not actually showing up in, in, in prosecutions that they're bringing. And, and I think that's a big part of the problem. Um, but a big part of the problem too, again, this is a whole of society issue, is the media attention gets diverted from these crimes. So it's not that crimes weren't happening in the period between 2000 and, and 20, it, it started getting coverage around the time that uh, President Obama was elected, you know, because the media became interested in this idea, oh, now that there's a black president, there's going to be more hate crimes. And Sure enough, when you start looking at it, it looks like there are more, but it's just that you're paying more attention to it. And because media started paying attention to it, uh, policymakers started paying attention to it. So police had to react, be more reactive to it and acknowledge it, but it's not, it's not really measuring what's actually happening. This has been a persistent problem as the Vincent Chin case shows, right? This is something that's always been with our society. I think what's different from when I worked these cases in the 1990s is that you have people in positions of authority expressing these ideas and, and expressing um, some support for the violence, right? You know, there was always dog whistle politics, racist dog whistles that, that politicians would use to try to uh, get votes, but what's occurring now is that they are actually openly supporting these causes 
you know, appearing at, at campaign events with members of far-right militant groups. Uh, you know, the president of the United States told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, right? I mean, this kind of rhetoric from an authority figure gives license to people to commit these violent crimes. And for most of the Trump administration, those crimes were being committed in plain sight publicly, and yet you saw very little law enforcement response. And even now, after January 6th, there's a massive effort to understand January 6th, but not to go back and look at all those previous crimes that were really committed by some of the same people uh, that, that later were, were able to amass the, the resources to attack the Capitol. So it, it, this is a persistent problem uh, that isn't properly addressed. Our next speaker, Helen Zia, author, veteran journalist, activist for AAPI and LGBTQ communities, who will speak about why 40 years after his murder, Chin's legacy is so relevant to the issues we are confronting today. Helen, thank you for joining us. Yaga, 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 Mr. Clean B, a.k.a. the Yaga Man, live and direct at Phoenix. Now, you already know you are listening to the Alvin Galloway Show. Now, stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune up the Alvin Galloway Show for conversation, information, great music, and great culture. Every Sunday from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, live and broadcasting. You already know, Yaga, 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 yeah. Helen Zia, author, activist, and former journalist, founding member of the Detroit-based American Citizens for Justice. Well, first of all, thank you, Sandy, and thank you to the Ethnic Media Services for having this really, really important discussion, especially after such a horrendous several days, let alone month and two and a half years and, you know, decades of of the kinds of things that that Mike was describing. And and yes, in these past, especially two and a half years, it's been incredibly intense for Asian Americans um, who even when the coronavirus was first identified in 2019 being in China before there was even a single case here in North America. Um, the Asian American communities were feeling the, the sting of, of harassment and violence. And so um, it's very chilling, I suppose, to look back over 40 years at a hate incident, you know, a hate crime, a hate murder that Sandy, you described, and Mike, you gave an, a, a really excellent context to that in the 1980s when a, a young man named Vincent Chin was killed 40 years ago on the night of his bachelor party. The thing about that, what we are trying to remember of that time was that the 1980s uh, were a time of incredible economic crisis in America. You know, we're facing uh, gas, rising gas prices, the threat of inflation. The 1980s, inflation was reaching 20%. Uh, and there was an oil crisis a couple of oil crises that began in the 1970s that led to the collapse, not only of the auto industry, but the entire manufacturing sector of America. <clears throat> That's when America ceased being a manufacturing-based country. 
And so there was incredible structural change. The government at that time, which now people sort of lionize Ronald Reagan, but his whole um, uh, campaign and his whole, whole administration was based on dismantling the social safety nets, things like unemployment, um, food stamps, all of those things were part, you know, mental health services, the things that today, 40 years later, our society is suffering from, really began with this dismantling during that period. So it was a time of incredible crisis. And I had been an auto worker in Detroit myself and was laid off during that time in the late 1970s. And I stood in unemployment lines with hundreds of thousands of other people who were looking at never finding work again. And so it was very clear just how, how much pain and suffering and misery there was. And, you know, Mike spoke about not having people in white robes going around, um, um, you know, committing racist acts. These were people in the C-suites, the heads of the auto industries, people in the halls of Congress saying, we are at war. We are at war because Japan makes fuel efficient cars. And it was a way of bringing people together to scapegoat and blame some external force for the difficulties that were happening internally in America. And um, that was 40 years ago. We can point to many times in history where that's happened, where Asians in America have been blamed for, especially for economic crises. That happened in the 1800s, it happened throughout the 1900s, and in the 1980s, um, Japan was blamed. Well, you know what? Germany made highly fuel efficient cars, but scapegoating and racism only works, of course, when people look different and can be targeted and isolated. So I wanted to um, just sort of add that to the frame. The thing that made the uh, attack and the hate killing of Vincent Chin even more egregious was when his killers, who were two white auto workers, today there is so much misinformation to imply that the anti-Asian hate is being um, committed by mostly black people, and that is not true. And we can talk about that more <clears throat> because there are a few national studies that have shown that that's not true. But the killers of Vincent Chin, who's, who saw him at the bar where he and his friends were celebrating Vincent's um, bachelor party, saw him and said, it's because of you mother Fs that we're out of work. Now these were white auto workers. And by the way, neither of them was out of work. They were both fully employed and in high paying jobs, but they connected the looking at Vincent Chin, who by the way, they did not mistake for being Japanese. Um, his friend said, no, no, he's Chinese. And then later they went through the streets of Detroit it, stalking him saying, let's get the Chinese. So they knew he wasn't Japanese. And this is the part of the anti-Asian hate, it's that it doesn't matter. I mean, today, the, you know, we have more than 11,000 uh, incidents reported where people say their own ethnicity and it's yellow, brown, East Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian, it doesn't matter um, if you're Asian, you know, and in the case of Vincent Chin, he was Asian. But so the fact that his killers were white, I wanna point out because the attack itself was egregious enough, but, um, when it came time for them to be sentenced and the killing was witnessed by 70 people or more. And so there was no question that they had violently 
beating Vincent's brains out into the street with a baseball bat. The judge said, oh, these are not the kind of men you send to jail and gave them probation. And this is in the city of Detroit. And this was just outrageous because there was no question in anybody's minds, had the killers been black, had they been Asian, had they not been white, they would have gone to jail for a very long time. So the sense of injustice was great. And that was, and that's where I wanna go with talking about the real legacy of the Vincent Chin story, is that injustice and in the midst of great hate toward Asian Americans, but also we know that hate spills over as, as uh, you and Mike had been talking about. Um, in that time, people came together. We saw the birth of a civil rights movement. Asian Americans came together to stand up and say, this is not the democracy we're supposed to be standing up for. And Asian Americans came together with Black Americans, Arab Americans, um, people of all walks of life and faiths. And it was really a multiracial, multi-class, interfaith, I mean, solidarity movement to stand up against hate and to stand up for justice and equality of all people. And so that's one of the things we're trying to commemorate. It's 40 years later, in, in less than three weeks, we're going to have a really, you know, commemoration series of events that will be live streamed to. Um, everybody can see the series of events by going out to vincentchin.org. But so we hope to spread the, not just the remembrance of what happened 40 years ago, but the lessons from that of people coming together. And we know that 40 years have passed. And in these 40 years, there's been highly concentrated efforts to keep people divided, to pit communities against each other even, as you pointed out, Sandy, even intra-ethnic uh, violence and hate, which we just saw this week, and we, you know, and last week in California, this week in Texas. And so this is the kind of thing that has been actively um, promoted by highly, highly resourced think tanks to find ways to keep people divided. And so the perpetuation, for example, of the idea that it's it's black people attacking Asians. You know, we, we have plenty of data to show that that's not true. We have plenty of leaders in the black community who have stood up from Jesse Jackson to Stacey Abrams to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who have said anti-Asian hate is wrong. They do not get viral attention. They don't get headline attention. The fact that there are Asians out there marching in movements for black lives and carrying signs and creating you know, their own organizations called Asians for Black Lives, that doesn't get attention. And so what does get attention today is the division and the impression that we can never come together, that our communities are so divided. And, and that helps create a feeling that, well, you know, this group doesn't like that group, we'll never come together. But in fact, we know that you know, this demographic trend is that our, our Democracy is becoming more diverse and within a very short time will be a majority, um, majority minority, but majority people of color, you know, uh, demographic in America. And that's what some groups are so afraid of. But if we could break through these divisive barriers and come together, um, <laughs> we're in the majority. People of color, people of conscience, you know, and all these other movements that are standing up 
um, for justice and peace and safety in America. That is the majority of Americans, uh, if we can break through this calculated division. And that is the legacy that we are trying to remember in this 40th uh, year of, you know, Vincent Chin's legacy. So, um, so we're trying to do that. And I, I think, you know, we really have to break through these, these divisions. And seeing this group here, you know, on the Zoom, this is actually where we have to go with this, to, to not allow the disinformation to keep us divided. So um, there's so much more to say about all this, but I'll, I'll just stop now. I, I think um, your words are so eloquent, Helen. Um, one question before we move to our third speaker is what, what can we in ethnic media, our strength is communicating with our own in-language or special targeted communities to bridge beyond those communities to a more inter-ethnic reporting capability. What, what is your advice as a journalist and a committed activist? What, what would you advise us to do to support this effort at building more inter-ethnic, interracial understanding and collaboration? Yeah, that is the, the question. And I, and I have to say, you know, doing what Ethnic Media Services is doing right now and encouraging all of your, um, you know, different media uh, participants to do now is what is needed. And a lot of it is working in our communities to unlearn and 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 detoxifies or decolonize the misinformation that exists and and then to tell the truth about the the real solidarity the commonalities the understanding it really has to begin there so for example one of the things we're doing for this 40th um um recognition and commemoration of of, of what happened in detroit then is we're putting together a legacy guide that tells the factual story of what happened then, as well as the solidarity, telling the stories of solidarity, and to show that these didn't just magically happen. It took hard work of people coming together, asking difficult questions of each other. And those are the kind of questions that the journalists here can do. The other thing we're including there is a, a history of civil rights in America you know, starting in the 1500s and 1600s with the enslavement and genocide of indigenous people and the enslavement of people from Africa and how the civil rights movement was built. And we're translating that into Chinese, into, into several other Asian languages. And we're gonna put it online because we think that a lot of the um, recent immigrants really don't know the history of civil rights in America and their connection to it and how our communities are so connected. So we really wanna stress that too and put that in our Asian languages. So doing this kind of cross, cross information and making it available to our communities, is, it's just critical 
because we also are deprived of the real information and our communities are also susceptible to the um, to the division. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I wish we had you in our editorial uh, brainstorming sessions on a regular basis. Thank you. Now we go to our third speaker, John C. Yang, President and CEO of AAAJ, AAJC, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, who will speak about efforts to expand cross-racial, cross-ethnic solidarity across the civil rights and social justice organizations in this country. John, thank you for joining. Community Radio is supported by a donation from Held Lumber Company, Incorporated, with several decades of history with community involvement in Arizona. We want to thank Held Lumber for their support. More information at HeltLumber.com. H-E-L-D-T Lumber.com. up this morning, well, looked out the window and saw everyone playing, looked like they had baskets and traveling freely, ran out to join him as one, seemed to be so much fun, all day I dream, I dream of winning, all day I dream, I dream I'm selling Helped me to play so long The sun started going down And the life of real I could go dinging all night I'm gaming, feeling alright Trying to tell you that you're my
We return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services titled Honoring the Legacy of Vincent Chin, Strengthening Cross-Racial Solidarity Against Rising Tide of Racist Violence. And we return with John C. Yang. Thank, thank you very much, Sandy. Thank you, Sunita. Uh, it's always a pleasure to work with all of you to talk about the useful information that all of us need to hear. And it's always wonderful to share space with you, Helen, and Lisa, and Mike. It's wonderful to work with you all. I guess I want to start by thinking about how we just turn despair into hope and how we turn tragedy into strength. Because Helen's story about Vincent Chin and the legacy of Vincent Chin is in part that. There was great despair within our community after his murder, after the lack of justice. And certainly that was a huge tragedy. But what Helen talked about also was how, for the first time ever, all sorts of different ethnicities within the Asian American community came together. Historically, our Asian American communities were viewed as separate if we're looking at the 1970s. You know, there are times that we came together, but oftentimes there was the Chinese American community, there was the Japanese American community or the Korean American community. And we didn't work in solidarity. But after Vincent Chin, we saw something different and we came together. That was when the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association was formed. That was actually when my organization was formed to represent a voice here in DC. So in that sense, there was some great strength that was developed from that moment of tragedy. And I would like to think that that is what is happening now. And I, I would be able to cite evidence of that. Certainly there has been great tragedy in all of our communities. And as we've seen in the last few years, you know, I don't think it's lost on any of us that, yes, we in the Asian American community is seeing a huge spike in anti-Asian violence. But this is at the same time that we have seen the murders of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, and tragically of 10 African-Americans in Buffalo just recently. It is at the same time that we have seen Charlottesville, the same time that we have seen the insurrection at the Capitol where we saw so many Confederate flags flying in the Capitol. I don't think that's lost on any of our communities. And I think that is one place where we have come together. And, and frankly, part of it is that the media drives this in, I'm going to say both a good and a bad way. One of the bad ways that we've seen this, and Lisa will probably talk about this as well, is the replacement theory. The fact that this has become mainstream. For those that don't, don't know or you have heard about that, this is the theory that is espoused on what used to be extremist sites that somehow all of our communities are seeking to replace a Caucasian community. And frankly, I, let me go even further than that. It's not just a Caucasian community. If we were to be blunt about it, the, the people that feel like they are most in danger of being replaced are white Christian males with guns. That's really what we're talking about. And so when we talk about how we need to come together, we need to re recognize that there is that unifying principle. In terms of this moment, I will say again, with respect to tragedy turning to strength, was just the allyship I found among 
my communities of color. After the Atlanta murders, I started getting text messages, phone calls, cell phone calls, emails from so many of my colleagues within the communities of color. You know, Sherilyn Eiffel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund called me, Mark Morial at the National Urban League, Our, um, Tom Sines at Maldef, Arturo Vargas at Naleo. And all of them had the common thing. John, what can we do? We're here for you. And we got on a Zoom call uh, as it was the pandemic to talk about this. And at that time, I saw all of their faces. These were the faces of friends and colleagues. But I also saw the Charleston Church. I saw El Paso. I saw the Tree of Life Synagogue. I saw the Pulse nightclub. And so there was great tragedy that all of us had. And unfortunately, the Atlanta murders would now be added to that list from the Asian American community. But there was this great strength of coming together. And Sherilyn and I have done some wonderful conversations, difficult conversations about race and what it means within our respective communities. And one of the things that comes out of all of that is all how we cannot let others divide us. Helen talked about this and let me be very crystal clear about this. There's a study done by NIH that came out last year. There's another study done by the University of Michigan that came out in the summer of last year that shows that 75% of the attackers of Asian Americans are white. The predominant number of those are white males. African-Americans underrepresent the number of attackers when, you're, when we're talking about the percentage of the African-American population as compared to the percentage of our attackers. So yes, there are these viral videos that are out there showing most prototypically an African-American male attacking an elderly Asian-American female. I am not saying that these videos are false, but that is not the reality that all of us see on the ground. And so when we talk about what the media can do, what all of you can do, I would ask you to get those facts out there, that who is attacking us is not the, the African-American community. More to the point, especially for the Asian-American media, one of the things, unfortunately, I see within my community sometimes is, well, why aren't African-Americans standing up for us, right? Why aren't Hispanic-Americans standing up for us? But unfortunately, my community, I will admit, sometimes don't ask the question, why aren't white Americans standing up for us? I mean, that's really also the question we absolutely should be asking is like, our communities actually, frankly, are already quite tight and are standing up for each other. What we all need to be doing is asking that more fundamental question that Mike talked about, you know, this, this white supremacist society, these systems that have been in place for over 300 years and what we all can do to help dismantle them together. So in that sense, again, yes, there is a great deal of despair, but I do see hope. I do see strength in all of the things we are doing together. You know, having these, these conversations that we've had, showing up for each other, all of us collectively pushing the White House to do something more public, sustain that effort to talk about white, uh, white supremacy. One of the things that we're also doing is we actually have a unity march that is happening on June 25th in Washington, DC, where we are going to be bringing together people of all races, of all denominations to show unity. Uh, this is the first time that an Asian American organization or set of organizations, mine is only one, is co-leading this effort. But what we want to make clear to all of society is that we're all in this together. And when we say we, it's not just the Asian American community, but the African-American community, Native American, Hispanic American, LGBTQ, and women communities. 
I do find hope in all of this. I know that sometimes, certainly over the last two weeks, it can be difficult. But I would ask us to report the positive news as well, because I do see progress that can be made. Thank you. That would be great. We have time for one question. I think, Sunita, you had a question. Uh, do you want to ask your question before we go to Lisa Barrett? Yeah, I wanted to ask a question both of Helen and John. Um, Seven years after Vincent Chin, we had the murder of Navroz Modi in a very similar type of situation. I want to understand what distinguishes uh, these two incidents. And have we moved past the point where the attackers get by with a slap on the hand, as uh, what happened in the Navroz Modi case as well? Um, Helen? So uh, I actually was, you know, I was living in Detroit when Vincent Chin was killed. I was living in Jersey City when Nevroz Modi was killed. And um, and what was similar about them was immediately the uh, criminal justice system, the law enforcement, the people right on the ground dismiss any notion that it could be race related. Even though when Nevroz Modi was killed in Jersey City, there was a group called the Dot Busters whose mission was to eliminate all, quote, Hindus from um, the region. And, and some of the attackers were part of that group as well. But what happens is it, they don't even get investigated. Uh, the thought, uh, I think Mike gave a statistic that 15% uh, of law enforcement e even acknowledges that there might be hate crimes. When it comes to Asians in America, the default is that Asians do not experience racism. There is no discrimination against Asian Americans that, well, aren't they like white people, except not? And that is the, the default reaction. We could go through a long list of other individuals who have been killed in hate crimes, including five eight-year-old children in 1989 in Stockton, California where the very day they were killed, the police chief said, oh, this has nothing to do with race, even though 80% of the students at that school were Southeast Asian children. And later, the community demanded uh, a separate investigation by the state, and they found that the killer was tied to white supremacist organizations. But the default over and over again, whether it was Vincent Chin or Navros Modi or a, you know, a long list of other people who have been killed including Atlanta and the women who were stalked and killed there. The, the immediate response is, this has nothing to do with race. And so they don't get listed as potential hate crimes. They don't get investigated that way. And you know, to the broader discussion about society, that impression of, well, Asian Americans don't experience anything terrible. They're the quote, that racist model minority thing. Um, that contributes also to the hate crimes. And I think to Sandy's question, what can we do about it? We, you know, part of it is within our reporting, we have to, and I know your um, network already does this, but to debunk this kind of thing over and over again, and to expose when law enforcement says, oh, it has nothing to do with race, um, to, to actually do a little bit more of the prodding and exposure of of that kind of default default racist you know assumption thank you helen we will now go to lisa seiler barrett 
Director of Policy at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who will speak about the need for cross-racial solidarity to push policymakers exactly where, where our conversation is taking us, and also to push beyond the negative stereotypes and rhetoric fueling the and validating the hate and violence. Ms. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sandy. Um, it's so good to be here with all of you for this important conversation. And I'll just say good morning or good afternoon to everyone, um, depending on, on where you're sitting today and headed into the long weekend. Um, what we have seen over the last few years in terms of the significant rise in hate crimes and attacks or violence against people of color in this country is utterly deplorable. Um, the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor in 2020, um, the killing of eight people in the Atlanta spa shooting, six of whom were Asian women. Um, and then most recent, the most recent set of incidents um, where we've seen 19 children and two teachers murdered at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, a town where 80% of the population identifies as Latinx, um, or the 10 Black people murdered at the grocery store in Buffalo, or the Asian American individuals killed at the church in Southern California. Um, the violence and loss just in the last 12 to 13 days is unspeakable. Um, for years, racist and stere racist stereotypes, misinformation and disinformation that Helen talked about, and false narratives have been used to drive a wedge between the Black and Asian American community. And we've all heard the various narratives um, used, such as um, Asian Americans being portrayed as the model minority, and um, I heard John talk about uh, the narrative of the perpetual foreigner or the racist depictions of Black people as lazy and as criminals. And, and those narratives and stereotypes then get used um, to really pit us against each other and pit our communities against each other, um, causing us to fight each other rather than to join forces to work together to advance equality and to really push this country and the policymakers in this country closer to the ideals that um, it espouses. And so the, but the truth is, and I thought Mike did a great job of, of setting this out, that much of the violence, discrimination, the hate-filled rhetoric, et cetera, that our communities are experiencing have the same roots. Um, it's a white power structure that seeks to maintain control and that is, fearful of the growing um, communities of color in this country. And so it's so great to be here with John Yang because LDF and AAGC often work together in efforts um, within the policy arena to advance uh, various federal legislation. We've worked together on voting rights legislation, on police reform legislation. We've joined forces in litigating cases related to affirmative action. And more broadly, both of our organizations are part of a larger coalition of civil rights organizations um, that work together and align on a number of issues of concern to the civil rights community. Um, it's actually, as we sit here to commemorate the life of Vincent Chen and his legacy, 
it should be noted that the African-American community was one of the first to stand up and say that his murder was wrong. Um, and so that community in Detroit um, was not hesitant to stand up and say this was wrong um, and and um, should not have happened and that those two men should should have faced greater, greater charges. Um, many in our community often stand up for and with each other, but we certainly need to do that more. Uh, we need to unite the communities that LDF and AAGC were, uh, were established to serve. And we need to be sure that our communities see the need for the allyship and solidarity um, as important and as the way to really advance these various policies that um, we are fighting for individually and that seem to be stuck um, both at the federal level and at the state level. Um, I think we often, we definitely yield sort of more power and influence when we stand together. And, but I do wanna sort of shift to the other part of the work that's really critical and Helen started to talk about this and that's the work of really changing or shifting the narrative in this country. Um, we are in this dark place in this country. I, I believe largely or, or a large part of it is because we have allowed the narrative to be unchecked for so long. Um, the hateful and hate-filled and dangerous narrative that um, Mike talked about, you know, was coming from the highest offices in this country. Um, has gone largely unchecked. So we've had folks in political offices, folks in media stations, corporate representatives, um, repeating, um, iterating, uh, <laughs> and creating an environment where uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, really has become normalized. It's repeated and recycled, and in some instances, glamorized. And we have to do more to push back against that narrative. We need to call out these um, the people that are are espousing these things and balance the narrative with stories that really help folks see the humanity in one another, um, and to help uh, people from different backgrounds and different cultures uh, see themselves in each other. Uh, the stories that we see right now are often lifting up um, the negative things about various cultures and, and further sort of undergirding this idea of, of various cultures being predators or enemies to one another, as opposed to lifting up the richness and goodness that comes from having a multiracial and multi-ethnic community. Um, and I'll just say, it's wonderful to see and certainly appropriate to see the stories about the interests and the achievements, the loving families, uh, the community involvement, and all that we have seen over the last few days of those who have lost their lives in the recent murders in Buffalo and Uvalde. But what we really need is to see those stories before horrific incidents happen. Um, we need to see the stories about um, Latino children and their dreams to become, uh, you know, baseball stars and 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 uh, I forget what the other uh, what the sister was dreaming of, um, but those are the stories that are being told now that are not told before horrific incidents happen. 
um, the stories of, you know, some of the folks that died in the Buffalo community and, you know, the longevity of the marriage between um, the woman that died that was just leaving the nursing home from seeing her husband. But those are not the stories that we hear on a regular basis. Um, we also need more people pushing back on the prevalence um, of the either or, I say the either or, but some people have called it the zero sum mentality. Um, there's a running narrative that if one group gets ahead, that automatically means that another group is left out or left behind. And this is part of the narrative that underlies the tension between the Black and Asian American community. And we see this narrative play out in so many ways and on so many of our issues, even in the conversations for the last few weeks, um, where we have, you know, a situation that should really unite us all to do something about gun control and about the number of guns in this country and the access to the types of guns folks have access to in this country. And yet there's still this undercurrent that you can't have gun control and without somehow impeding um, what others espouse to be their second um, amendment rights. And so everything doesn't have to be an either or scenario. And I think the media can be really helpful in lifting up the false nature of that narrative. Um, but again, I just wanna go back to, um, I do think as, as John said, our communities have come together, they have stood together. Um, historically in different moments, we certainly need to see more of that, but that is our power. Um, that is how we will be able to really move this country closer to its ideals. And it is the reason that um, there's a constant effort to divide us and we just need to, to recognize it and really push back against that. And I, I really uh, look forward to uh, seeing more from the media and appreciate everything that you all, this group is already doing, but seeing more from you to help us shift the narrative because narrative is, I think, um, at times downplayed and it is a really powerful um, aspect to all of this in terms of the, cre the culture that's being created um, that's allowing these things to happen. So I'll stop there and know we, well, we thank are you. Close, thank close you. to time. <laughs> the, we do have one question I'd like to ask Henrietta Burroughs. Henrietta, do you want to ask your question of, of Ms. Barrett? Yes, Sandy, thank you so much. How would you characterize the Biden-Harris administration in terms of shifting the narrative in regard to its policies and changing the current racist power structure? Um, I will jump in first. <laughs> um, I'll say, uh, one, you don't see the president of the United States standing up and, as Mike said, telling the Proud Boys to, to basically arm themselves and, and be ready. Um, so that's a helpful shift, but that may be a low bar. Um, but given sort of what we've come out of, it, it is a change, a, a positive change to go back to not having the leader of the free world um, repeating and espousing those things. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that the Biden-Harris administration has issued uh, a directive to federal agencies to really look at how they can make 
um, racial equity real? And so what are the policies, the practices, what are the grants that you're making, all of that? How do you, how do we make the whole federal government um, really focused on making racial equity real? Um, and we've been in conversations with um, the administration, as I'm sure John and his organization have, about um, how to put teeth to that, how to make sure that it's real, how to make sure that it's embedded in the agencies and not just something um, that happens in this moment, um, but that it, it becomes part of the culture of the agencies. But I think the fact that the president and the vice president have made it very clear that that needs to be such a priority is helpful in shifting um, this, the narrative. Um, but we need, we need more, right? The narrative, um, it's, a, it's helpful to have that example but um, we need that to permeate down to communities, um, to uh, other elected officials at other levels, um, down to schools, <laughs> you know, what we're seeing in school board meetings and the, the just uh, vicious attacks and, and, and rhetoric we're seeing there. So it's, it's gotta go down through um, sort of all levels of, of government and of our community. But, um, certainly they are taking positive steps, I would say, to, to shift that narrative. Um, How do we solve the data issue? So, so I, I think the data is critically important because data drives resources. And, you know, unfortunately, the way the data is, is collected or not collected today, uh, I think, reflects uh, law enforcement bias. You know, just like every other type of crime in the United States, hate crimes disproportionately target black people as subjects of the crime. And so you know, when, when somebody is talking about the data, they're talking about what the police have identified and reported. They're not talking about what crimes are committed as the Justice Department victim surveys suggest. You're, you know, there are hundred thousands uh, of, uh, of violent hate crimes that, that police don't report. Um, so, so there's no way to know what, what the true nature of, of this type of violation is. Um, there, there, it was a bill, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, that was going to require the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to collect better data. Uh, unfortunately, that failed this week uh, with a, a partisan vote uh, in, in the Senate and so we don't have that going forward. Uh, the good news is that part of that data collection requirement was passed in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020. Uh, the FBI and DHS produced a report in 2021 acknowledging, uh, actually, I think it was 2022. No, 2021. In May of 2021, they produced a report that uh, acknowledge that they don't collect data about white supremacist violence. So it's, it's out there, it's plain. They didn't comply with all of the data requirements. So contact your, your local representative and find out why that they're allowing the FBI to ignore the data requirements in the law. And this is the Alvin Galloway Show. And we want to thank Ethnic Media Services for the briefing again gives us good information from experts in different areas to make good choices for our lives and our families' lives. 
And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. Check us out on Facebook, The Alvin Galloway Show, and our podcast, The Alvin Galloway Show, wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.